When you were growing up, did your parents or grandparents ever have these sayings that they used to repeat that just didn't make much sense to you? You know, sayings like, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, a new broom sweeps clean, but an old broom knows the corners. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Or in the moment of crisis, the wise build bridges and the foolish build dams. When you hear those sayings, it's like they're speaking a different language, isn't it? You, you can hear the words, you can understand the words, but you've got absolutely no idea what on earth they're talking about. Have you been taking your tablets, Grandma, or have you been forgetting again? I think we have one of those sayings in our passage this morning. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Have you ever wondered what Jesus meant by that? Does it actually make any sense at all? Or is it just one of those grandpa or grandma sayings? No one pours new wine into old wineskins. This morning, we're going to take a look at the whole of the passage that Sue just read for us. Because Mark didn't intend for us to just read that phrase in isolation. And we're going to see if the whole passage can reveal for us what Mark was getting at there. In our evening service, in, over the last month or so, we've been working through the first few chapters of the book of Mark. And we've seen in these first few chapters, Jesus begin to reveal who he is and what God's kingdom is like. We've seen Jesus show that his true priority was not physical matters, but it was the spiritual health of people. And we saw that when he healed and then miraculously forgave the sins of a paralysed man. That shocked people. Who can forgive sins but God, they said. And then last Sunday night, we were challenged as we saw Jesus call the dirty, rotten, scumbag tax collector Levi, the lowest of the low, and Jesus called him to be his disciple. And we kind of asked the question, why would Jesus do that? What was the purpose behind that? And throughout these first two chapters, there's been one recurring theme at all. The religious establishment, the Pharisees, have not been at all impressed by what Jesus has been doing. Why would Jesus, a man who was claiming to be God, be hanging out with people that the local drug dealers wouldn't let their kids hang out with? Why was he associating with these kind of people? Jesus' ministry was proving to be very, very different to what people were expecting. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the next three scenes in Mark's Gospel. They're three connected scenes. It might not seem like it at first, but they have the same message. And we're going to see more of what God's kingdom is like. 
what this kingdom that Jesus came to usher in is actually like. Let's look at the first scene now. In verse 18, we see that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people obviously noticed that Jesus and his disciples weren't fasting. And so they wanted to know why. It's probably pretty understandable that this question came up. Jesus had just been having a huge banquet dinner with Levi and his mates. So this is a natural question. But at its heart, the people asking this question wanted to know why Jesus wasn't following the status quo. Why was he doing things a little bit differently to what they expected? The law required, this is the law of Moses, required that the whole nation of Israel fast on one day a year. The day of atonement, which was the natural day, the national day of repentance for the sins that had been committed. By the post-exilic period, which is after Israel had been exiled to Babylon as punishment for their disobedience over many, many centuries, Israel was fasting five times a year. But by Jesus' day, the Pharisees had decided that even five days of fasting a year wasn't enough. And so they decreed that if you were a really serious follower of God, you would fast two days a week, on Monday and on Thursday. And when the Pharisees were fasting, they would make it really, really obvious that they were fasting. They used to put white powder on their faces to make it look like they were mourning. They'd walk around with, with long faces looking miserable so that everyone would see how committed and how devoted they were. And it was impressive. These guys were taking religion really seriously. It's like over morning tea later today, someone telling you that they wake up at four o'clock every morning to pray. That's impressive, isn't it? That takes commitment. You're impressed. You see, fasting in Jesus' day wasn't about weight loss. The Pharisees weren't the first Weight Watchers group that was out there. Don't think that. Fasting was a means of showing your grief and your sorrow and your regret over the sins that you've committed. And fasting was really closely connected with prayer and praying that God would again come back and save his people Israel. But what the Pharisees had done is they had added to the rules that God had initiated. In the law, God had required one day of fasting a year. But the Pharisees decided that that wasn't quite enough. And so they added it to make two days a week. They seemed to think that being religious needed to be a solemn, mournful, joyless kind of affair. As if being a religious person meant having to do things that you just don't want to do and being kept from doing all of the things that you enjoy. They didn't understand that there was a big difference 
between being pious and having a living relationship with God. They basically equated having a relationship with God, following God, with being miserable. Let's be honest. That's not exactly limited to Jesus' day, is it? There are plenty of people in our churches today that seem to think that following Jesus is all about being solemn and looking miserable. Tutting at kids who call out in church and who show joy. Never smiling. Walking in the doors of church as if they've just found out that their rich aunt has left all of her possessions to her cat. Unfortunately, church history shows that that's not a modern phenomenon. History is full of believers who did not at all appreciate their brothers and sisters in Christ, showing joy and freedom in the Lord. Do you remember that in Acts, the early Christians were so excited, so full of joy, that they were accused by unbelievers of being drunk? I wonder, how would that go down in our church today? The early Franciscans were scolded for laughing in church because they were so happy. I wonder, how would people respond if you just burst out laughing during our service this morning? The first Methodists stole funky pub songs and transformed them into Christian songs where they praised God. We don't need to wonder how we'd respond to that. The ongoing discussion about contemporary worship music kind of shows how we respond to that. You know, the first members of the Salvation Army were encouraged by General Booth who started the Salvation Army that when they were in their church services and they felt the Spirit of God move in them, whether that be an encouragement or a rebuke or what have you, they were encouraged to leap for joy. They were to be so excited that the Spirit was at work. I wonder, how would we view it if Duncan started leaping for joy during our service this morning? That response is instructive. Hold on to that. Hold on to that laugh. Since when has following Jesus meant to be a sombre, joyless affair? Since when has it meant to be all serious and no fun? I'm not on the building committee, I've got to say that, but I would love it if our building committee decided to not have a cry room in our new church. Because you know what, I have loved the fact that we have had our families at the side or the back of our church. We can hear kids calling out, we're a family, are we not? God's word talks about us being brothers and sisters. We are a family. Kids make noise. Don't we want to have kids making noise and showing joy in our services? What's wrong with that? My friends, it was the self-righteous members of the, of the religious establishment that asked Jesus this question. Why aren't you and your disciples fasting? And Jesus, as he typically does, answers them brilliantly using the picture of a wedding. 
How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. Back in the first century when a Jewish couple got married, they didn't immediately head off on a honeymoon like we do today. They actually stayed at home and they had a week-long feast full of joyous celebration, food and drink. They were treated like a king and a queen. They were celebrated. In fact, sometimes they actually wore crowns to symbolise that. Jewish weddings were the highlight of the year in a village. Lots of food, lots of wine, lots of dancing and lots of joy. Life was pretty tough in the first century. Days were spent out in the field. Life was tough. To fast during a wedding was absolutely unimaginable. You just couldn't contemplate it. And Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees here that there's no need to mourn and to be sad at that very moment. There was no need to be filled with grief because what they had been praying for, the coming kingdom, the Messiah, was there. Why are you guys looking so sad? I'm here. What you're praying for has come. It's no different for us, is it? My brothers and sisters, we should be, as believers in the Lord Jesus, the most joyful people on earth. How can we look miserable? The Messiah has come. In verse 21, Jesus changes the picture a little bit and he moves on from a wedding to mending clothes. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Back in Jesus' day, it won't surprise you that clothes didn't come pre-shrunk like they do today. So they actually had to mend their clothes. I'm sure some of you here this morning can remember those days that are so foreign to many of us. Even though some of us come from a different era and have never even contemplated patching our clothes, we kind of understand the picture here, don't we? If you put a new patch on an old pair of jeans and you wash them, the hole's going to get bigger, isn't it? The patch is going to pull away. That makes sense, doesn't it? So far, so good. But then we come to verse 22. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Okay, I think that one's just a little bit trickier to understand. In order to understand what Jesus is getting at here, we need to go back to life in first century Palestine. Because back in Jesus' day, if you felt like a nice glass of semion after a hard day's work, You didn't go to the bottle shop on the way home or go up to the Hunter Valley for a weekend away. 
Wine wasn't mass-produced in these big aluminium vats. In Jesus' day, the skin of goats, yes, real goats, was stripped off, tanned, and then it was filled with new wine. The goat skins were really strong, but also really flexible, so that the fermenting wine inside could expand and the skin wouldn't break. Over the process of fermentation, the wine would expand and the skin would expand with it. But by the end of the fermentation process, when the wine was ready, the skin would be pretty tough. And so, if you put new wine into an old wineskin, a wineskin that had been through that fermentation process already and that was now pretty hard and not at all malleable, the pressure from the wine as it fermented would build and build and then it would explode and you'd have lost the wine. So there you go. You now know a little bit more about first century winemaking. But why? What's the purpose behind these examples? Is Jesus just giving us tips for running a clothing shop or a winery? What's the point? My friends, the point is this. The coming of Jesus ushered in a new kingdom. Jesus came as the fulfilment of the old covenant, that's for sure. But he also introduced something which was new and transforming and different. He didn't come just to put a little patch on the old religious establishment. The old was giving way to a new era of fulfilment. Jesus came to offer a new way to God, a way to God that didn't involve sacrifices and priests and religious rituals. Jesus would be the priest. He would be the sacrifice. And the way to God would be through a relationship with him. My friends, this new kingdom was earth-shattering. It was powerful, fermenting. It was explosive. And it could not be fitted into the old ways of thinking. It was new wine. It was new wine. The new life that Jesus brings stretches us, doesn't it? It can't be patched together with our old selves. Our previous way of life, our sinful behaviours, our previous ways of thinking, they're old wineskin material. Often we try to combine the new wine of Jesus with the old wineskins of our old practices, our old attitudes, our old preferences. But it just doesn't work. We have to allow Christ to come in and to ferment and to modify those areas of our lives or else we're just going to burst. We need to allow God to work the new wine that's inside of us. When God's doing a new thing, we should join in the party with thanksgiving and joy and not grumble because the new wine is challenging us in some old wineskin areas.
But we see that because the Pharisees were old wineskin kind of people and they still had that old wineskin thinking, they kept clashing with Jesus. And in the next two scenes, we see Jesus clashing with old wineskin thinking about what was allowed on the Sabbath. Just as they'd added to the law's requirements regarding fasting, the Pharisees had done the same regarding the Sabbath. They instituted a whole raft of rules that, that governed what was and wasn't allowed on the Sabbath. And what they did is they basically turned the Sabbath into a whole set of outward rules that governed your outward behaviour but that totally ignored the heart. And so these old wineskin Pharisees just could not understand that the disciples weren't breaking the Sabbath when they were walking through a field and they rubbed off the heads of the grain and rubbed them together so they could eat. The Pharisees' guidelines, these man-made guidelines, had decided that doing this was work and work wasn't allowed on the Sabbath, so they were condemning They couldn't even understand Jesus' explanation that came from their own scriptures that it was okay to meet your needs on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath for humans, for our benefit, not to be enslaved by these man-made rules that surrounded them. And we saw that their old wine set, old wine skin mentality couldn't handle Jesus healing the ma- a man who had a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. They just couldn't see that God intended for the Sabbath to be a day of rest, a day of renewal for the body and worship for the soul. To them, healing was work and so it was prohibited regardless of how good or needed or beneficial it might be. My friends, the Pharisees were so blinded by what they considered to be necessary rules that they entirely missed the fact that the kingdom of God and the healing and the restoration that it brings was there amongst them. They were more concerned about rules than the amazing work that God was doing right there in front of them. And so, they began plotting to kill Jesus. The new wine that Jesus brought, that could have brought them life and vitality and hope, ended up clashing with their old religious wineskins and it just spills on the ground. So, here's the million dollar question. What does this passage have to say to us today? Don't be cranky old wineskins like the Pharisees. Well, yeah, but that's definitely not the main point of this passage. I think this passage speaks to us in two main ways this morning. Firstly, We each need to ask ourselves, what kind of wineskin am I? 
Am I an old wineskin? More concerned with religious rituals than relationship with Jesus? Are you here this morning thinking that your church attendance, maybe even your ministry involvement, is going to earn your way to heaven? My friends, that's old wineskin thinking. Or are you a new wineskin? Have you been filled with the new wine that's come from Jesus and you're overflowing and fermenting with joy as he works inside you? Do you have that? Are you experiencing that this morning? And a second question. If you are a believer, how would you describe your life in Christ? Are you overtaken with old wineskin thinking? And old wineskin thinking is irrespective of age. Let me be clear on that. Are you overtaken with inflexibility, with resistance to change, negativity, seeing, seeing problems everywhere but not solutions? Are you living as a new wineskin should, bursting with flavour and vitality? If you're one of our more traditional Baptists and you're struggling with the thought of being new wine this morning, just imagine it's new Maison, okay, and just see if you can, if you can handle that. Ask the question, am I living a radical new wine life? free from religious observance, from religious rituals, filled with risk-taking instead and total abandonment to the gospel. You might have heard the famous quote, and if it's new to you, it's going to take you a while to understand this one. It took me about 15 readings. Tradition is the living faith of those now dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those still living. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those still living. That quote reminded me of a story that one of my mentors once told me. The church that he served at had always had a 6pm Christmas Eve service. And one year they decided to move it to 7pm. So they pushed it back one hour. But it didn't work too well, it was a bit too late on Christmas Eve, so they decided the following year to move it back to 6 o'clock. And when the change was announced, a man approached my mentor and told him off for changing the time. How his family had always loved coming along to the 7 o'clock Christmas Eve service and that they shouldn't meddle with traditions that people love so much. It only happened once. For this man, it happening once was enough of a tradition that meant it shouldn't ever be meddled with ever again. I decided to pick up our evening service series in the morning because I think that this passage is really speaking to us this morning. 
My friends, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to him, you are a new wineskin. You have the new wine of Jesus bursting forth, fermenting inside of you. We need to live up to who we are. We need to allow ourselves to be stretched by what God is doing. To be surprised by the way that God acts in new and different and exciting ways. We are at an exciting but also pivotal moment in the life of our church. We've sold the CBD property that we've been ministering in for many, many decades. We're getting ready to embark on a new adventure. But are we consumed by old wineskin thinking? What if God wants to do something through us at Liverpool Baptist that, don't, that doesn't fit into the old ways of thinking and operating? Just like those Pharisees, do we need to think bigger, to think differently, to get new wineskins out for the new wine that God is getting ready to pour? My friends, we can't fall into the trap of thinking that the old way of doing things is the only way of doing things no matter what. In our kids' ministries, in our services, in our fellowship groups, just as new wine can't be poured into old wineskins, are we simply looking to take the old wineskin programs and attitudes that we had in our old location that may or may not have worked in the past and just simply transplant them to a new spot? Are we trying to put God in a box? We spoke about that with the Tower of Babel about a month ago. Are we limiting him to acting in the same ways in the future that he has in the past? Are we open to the fermentation of the Spirit amongst us, bubbling with new programs, new ways of doing things, dispensing with the comfortable and the traditional ways as we radically follow Jesus? Rick Warren, the American pastor, famously said, when the horse is dead, dismount. When the horse is dead, dismount. I was reading a very interesting but also really sobering article on the Gospel Coalition Australia website. And this is what it said. Let's name the brutal truth first. Australian churches have been in more or less unmitigated decline since 1963. As from that date, fewer and fewer people have been involved in our churches. 
Fewer people have been connected to our ministries and almost every major Christian denomination has fewer people wanting to own them in the census, even if only to identify the church that they no longer attend. It continues. If you follow Jesus and would love others to join you, the news is bad. Even if you are in a thriving and growing church, the truth is that even those churches often reflect a wider and a sadder story. It's like there were once ten lifeboats, seven of them sunk, most people drowned, and those who survived had to scramble onto the three lifeboats who were left. If you're on one of those three remaining lifeboats, you can look around and think, Plenty of people here, things must be going well. But really, they're not. End of quote. That was from the Gospel Coalition Australia. There are some things that must never change. Our commitment to the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ must be front and centre in all that we do. That is unchanging. But do other things need to change? Ralph Neighbour famously said, the seven last words of the church are, we've never done it that way before. We've never done it that way before. The experience of other churches tells us very clearly that the approaches that worked 20 years ago just don't work anymore. If that is a shock to you, to your modern mindset, I'm sorry to burst that bubble for you this morning. But that's the truth. People are not knocking our door down on Sunday mornings to come to our services. Did it strike you and sadden you like it did last week? The fact that there were about 3,500 people who came to William Carey Christian School on a Sunday to attend a dance at Steadford. But there were 80 to 100 Christians who gathered together to hear the word of God. That just broke my heart. I know that this is tough and it's confronting to hear, but my friends, this is the environment that we are ministering in these days. We were talking about this last Sunday night at church. Australia is not a Christian nation anymore. And that's why it's so important that we build, as Andy mentioned, that we have our universes collide, that we're mixing our Christian and non-Christian friends, that we see our workplaces and our schools as places for evangelism because people aren't coming into the doors of churches anymore. So we need to go out. The world has changed. Can I share a scary statistic with you? I've shared this with our evening service congregation in the past. You know, even the things that we think that we're really, really good at, the things that we think are are really valuable for the community, people outside of these four walls just don't view it that way. This is a statistic from a Christian social research company, okay? So someone who's on our side. Only 20% of Australians think that the church provides any services at all that are of emotional, 
social or physical benefit. For so many decades, we as the evangelical church have sought to minister to our community and to reach out through our programs. And we think our programs are great, don't we? And often they are. But my friends, only 20% of Australians, 20% of the people that we're trying to reach, believe that our programs are of any emotional, social or physical benefit. Maybe we need to rethink ministry. Maybe we need some new wineskin thinking, hey? As we close, I know it's easy to feel threatened and challenged by what we've been talking about this morning. If the statistics are right, probably about 10% of you here this morning aren't going to like what I have had to say under any circumstances. About 10 to 20% of you are going to need some persuading. About 25% of you are going to love it and are going to be wanting to get out there and get new programs and get new evangelistic things happening. Like any group, we've got a mix of people here this morning. Some who love change, who think it's all exciting and fun. And there are also those I know of you who are scowling at me or who are suffering from heart palpitations right now. But my friends, we're not alone. God has given us his spirit. God has given us all that we need as we minister and as we share the good news of Jesus here in the southwest. The question is, are we open to the new things that God wants to do? Because if you read your Bible like I do, if we're unwilling That won't stop God. He'll find a different way. But wouldn't it be great to be God's partners doing something new here in the southwest? We've asked lots of questions this morning. This is designed to stretch our minds a little bit. Get thinking, please. Get praying. We are the new wineskins. We are people who are to rejoice in the new things that God is doing. My friends, pioneer new ways of ministering to our community. If you love sport, form a mixed netball team full of people from the church and your non-Christian friends. Join a local competition, not with the purpose of winning the trophy at the end, but of being an example to being salt and light in this world. Use it as an evangelistic opportunity. As I mentioned last Sunday night, join the local gardening club. Don't don't try to win the prize for the best flowers, but the eternal prize, sharing the good news of Jesus. Look out for those people who are pioneering new ways of serving God. Join alongside them. Because God is not restricted, my friends, to working in the same ways that he always has. There are new ways. New ways that might even stretch our minds and offend our sensibilities. But provided the gospel is central and people are coming to know Jesus through it, shouldn't we rejoice?
as new wineskins. It's my prayer that each of us will be open to these new ways of working, that the Lord will settle our fearful hearts as we look to be salt and light, ambassadors for Christ in this new and in this different, but in this world that is so full of potential for sharing the good news. Please be praying. Please be thinking. How is God going to work in new ways through us?